you would open a Bible with me to Romans chapter 10, Romans 10, that's where we'll be focusing our attention for the next few minutes, Romans chapter 10, uh, interesting thing just happened to me uh, because, uh, well, yesterday, usually, I, I guess this is a little behind the scenes, how the sausage is made in the worship service, but um, Usually the song leaders and I will have some kind of correspondence where I will let them know uh, what I'm going to be talking about uh, on Sunday. Uh, unfortunately, yesterday I didn't get that done until late in the evening, and uh, we had to, I had to take a quick trip to Texas, but that's another story I'll tell you about later. But um, it just so happened that Ryan had already picked his songs out, and so he told me this morning, you know, I'm sorry, I'd already picked the songs out, so there's not going to be any correlation to what you're talking about. And he was wrong because I, I, knowing that, you know, I'm the preacher, I know what I'm going to talk about, and so I'm, I'm singing these songs, and both of them, the first one has some connections to what I'm going to talk about in the main worship assembly, but the second one, the one we just sang, Sing Hallelujah to the Lord, I think you'll see in a minute, is powerfully connected to the text we're going to study, especially the, the claims of Jesus being risen from the dead and Jesus being Lord of heaven and earth, which are a part of what Paul says is what saves us. So, Really awesome. Well, I just point that out to say it's almost as if there might be somebody else involved besides just me and Ryan. And I just always am alert to the possibility that providence, that God is at work in some way, uh, making these things to be beneficial to us, to edify us, uh, so that we can worship God and all of those things working together for good for us. Good to see you this morning. We have a number of visitors with us. We're always glad that you're here. I know that uh, there's been a lot of graduations and exciting things going on. We're just happy for you to, to be here with us and uh, happy for those people that are, uh, uh, you know, moving one step forward in their career, in their life this weekend. It's, it's a special weekend for that. I want to begin by reading Romans 10 and verse 1. Romans 10 and 1 says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The them in this text, my heart's desire and prayer for them, is the Jews. And Paul is writing in this section about something that was heavy on his heart, which is the idea that he wanted the Jewish people to be saved, and yet, by and large, they were not. In fact, Paul could attest personally to the fact, as we've been reading in our devotional readings in the book of Acts, that very often the Jews are the ones who are kicking him out of the synagogues he had gone to his whole life. The Jews are the ones who are chasing him from town to town. The Jews are the ones who are not accepting Jesus as the Messiah. And so he says in verse 1 there, my heart's desire and prayer for them is that they may be saved. I have a lot of good to say about them. But... The question of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is not only why would that be that God could call up a people like the Jews and work with them throughout history, and then at the pivotal moment, they would choose not to believe in the Savior that God had promised. And the fundamental issue, Paul says, in answer to that, is that the Jews are seeking salvation or pursuing salvation and the goodwill of God in the wrong way. They're trying to find God in a way that is not going to work, particularly in, fact, in light of the fact that Christ has come. So the way I like to describe that, and, and maybe you don't like this image, and that's okay. I hope we can still be friends. But the way I like to describe that is I think of it as God changing the rules. 
that in chapter 9 of Romans, it focuses on how God changed the rules, moving from a system where Jews could be saved by perfect law-keeping, keeping the law, the works of the law, to a system whereby God saves on the basis of his grace through faith, through faith in his son. So God changed the rules, and that left many of the Jewish people who were working that law kind of out in the cold. I, I just imagine, I, I think it's hard for us to relate to this, but just imagine if suddenly you've been reading the Bible or going to church or being a Christian for a long time, for maybe most of your whole life, as, as many of us have in this room, and suddenly you are told, no, that's, that's not the way to do it anymore. Things have changed. So those passages you grew up reading, now something new has happened. There's a different way. And it's the same God, and he still wants you to live in a right way, but some of the rules have changed in how you're going to please God. How would we feel about that? We would be, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure about you, okay, if you were to tell me that. So it is a, quite a transition that he is describing here. And so in Romans 9, Paul is really saying, well, here is why this is okay. Here is why God has the right to do this. And why God changing the rules is about how that's God's right. If he is God of the universe, he could change the rules if he wants. And in particular, how God had kind of telegraphed, I'm going to do this by several passages in the Old Testament uh, that show that he had this plan all along. But in this section, in Romans chapter 10 that we're going to study this morning, we're going to talk about why God changed the rules. Romans 10 is going to say, why is it that the system of grace and faith is better than the system that used to be here? And so I want to examine this text with you for a few minutes because what we're going to find here is that God changed the rules to bring in something better, something that is going to bless us and benefit us. And somebody is going to ask, you might be asking it, maybe in your mind, hopefully not whispering to the person next to you, why are we studying this? I mean, after all, I'm not really tempted to go to the old law and keep the law of Moses for my salvation. It's not really something I'm planning on doing or want to do. So why would we study Romans chapter 10 and why God changed the rules? First of all, I think there is just the, the basic idea that you and I need to appreciate every day more and more how awesome our salvation is. It is an awesome thing. And God has done something for us that we could not have done for ourselves. I also want us to see that we need to be careful about pursuing salvation in the wrong way. While we might not try to go follow the Old Testament as our law today, we do have a tendency to try to create a kind of pseudo-law system that justifies us on the basis of us being good enough. And I want us to watch out for that because Jesus is a different way. And perhaps most importantly, I want to encourage us this morning that it is possible for you to be saved. And that's part of what this passage is intended to teach us, to give us assurance about. So we're going to say it this way, salvation by grace is better because. And I'm going to, as we go through this text, show you these four reasons. The first reason salvation by grace is better is because it's not about you. Look with me in verse 2. In Romans 10 and verse 2, it says, For I bear them, that's the Jewish people, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So they have a great zeal for God. Paul knew that personally. He had been a part of that. And the problem with this zeal is that it's not properly informed with the gospel. That's why he says they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. So they are not following along with what God is now doing. They rejected the information of the gospel. So verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God 
and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, when he uses the term God's righteousness here, I believe what he is referring to is God's plan to make people right through Jesus, God giving righteousness to people. They are ignorant of how God is now working to make people right. They think it's still the old way where if you stack up enough obedience to the law and you keep everything perfectly, then you turn in your obedience to God and you get one salvation. And he says, no, that's not the way God's working. You are ignorant of how God is dispensing righteousness today. God's righteousness comes in a different way. And because of that ignorance, he says, your zeal is not going anywhere. It's zeal that's not according to knowledge. See, that is especially true when you talk about the way they are viewing their righteousness. Do you see that in verse 3? Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They don't want God's righteousness. They want their own righteousness. They want it to be about them. And he says, that's the problem. Under the law of Moses, it's all about you. You do the work. You keep the law. You get to live. So you can have great zeal and be impressive in everybody else's eyes, but all you have done is create your own righteousness, a do-it-yourself righteousness that's ultimately all about you. I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And you ask that guy, well, why are you praying at all? You're not really talking to God. You're talking about yourself. That is a self-righteousness. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The word end in this text is very interesting because just like the English word end, it has a lot of different potential meanings. And we're going to talk about some of those a little later. But it can mean in result, it can mean conclusion, or it can mean end in the sense of cessation. So in this text, I think what he is primarily meaning is when Christ came, no longer would the law be a way to be right with God. That's a different system. All right, so verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So here's how salvation by works is described. It is described as if you do it, you live. It's about you. But grace is different. See, under grace, it's not about you. Look at verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. So he says, salvation by faith doesn't require us to ascend into heaven. It doesn't require us to descend into the abyss. You know, we don't have to go get Jesus and bring him down. We don't have to go get Jesus and bring him up. That would be about us. Instead, he says, this is a message that says God has already done what you can't do. God has already sent his son down. God has already raised his son up. So your job is not to make salvation happen. Your job is simply to respond to what God has already done, what God has put near you in your mouth and in your heart. He has brought it down to you or he has brought it up to you. However you want to think about it, both of those things are true. So it's about God and it's not about me. So salvation by grace is better. God changes the rules because he wants to create a system that's not about you and me. It's not about us receiving our own glory and working our own way to him. Because that's, for one, of course, that, that didn't work because people couldn't keep the law perfectly and therefore couldn't make it. But more than that, at the end of that whole system, all you have is boasting because of, look what I did. 
God wanted a different system. He changed the rules to make a system that's not about us. This is the law-keeping mentality. I have a host of good works that proves how worthy I am. And I work, and I work, and I work. I have to be constantly vigilant that even the smallest command is constantly fulfilled all the time, every day, always depending on me, me, me. Am I going to be able to get it done today? Am I going to do all the things? Am I going to let something slide today? Am I going to slip up today? Every day, all the time, focus on me, me, me. But salvation by grace means my works aren't what saves me. It's not about me. It's about God and the gift that he's given, and it's about just me responding to a righteousness that I have not, cannot, and never will deserve. Now, let me say a word about my concern about this in our time. My concern about this, as I said, is not that we're going to resurrect the law of Moses as a means of justification. My concern is that we tend to create law systems. And we tend to say, no, it is about me, and I have to do blank, blank, and blank. And we tend to create sets of rules and laws where it's really about our righteousness instead of God's. And then we compare ourselves to other people and begin to feel a little better because, you know, we can always say they're not keeping as many of the laws as I'm keeping. And my concern about that is that it leads to that same focus where it's about me and what I do and have I earned my salvation? Do I deserve it? And so suddenly we're back in that same mentality. God changed the rules to get us out of that mentality so that we begin to think my works, while important, are not what saves me. Christ is what saves me. So the first thing we would say about that is that salvation by grace is better because it's not about you. Second, salvation by grace is better because you can do it. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. There you go. Just that simple. Law of Moses was a simple system in that sense. All you have to do to get salvation is always obey God all the time in every circumstance, every minute of every day. That's all. So, you know, just do that and you'll have life. The person who does them lives by them, meaning eternal life by the commandments. Now, it's no surprise at all that when people who lived under that system describe it, they describe it like Peter. Do you remember what Peter said in Acts 15? Peter said, It is a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Now he is looking back through the Jewish history and all the great men and women who had lived in Jewish history, and he is saying, none of us have ever been able to bear this. It is a yoke that has weighed us down. And Peter is saying in that text, why are we going to give it to the Gentiles now when we couldn't handle it ourselves? The point is, there is a burden that comes with this because we know ourselves and our incapability of living perfectly. But the good news is that salvation by grace is possible. Look again at verse 6 with me. In verse 6 it says, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now what's happening here? This may seem like an odd little section to you. Where are all these ideas coming from about ascending and descending and all of that? Paul is taking an Old Testament text... And then he is explaining it 
in my version, I'm reading the ESV, it has it in parentheses, Paul's explanations, where he is saying each part of Moses' words is actually better applied to Christ and the system of righteousness by faith. So take a minute, let's leave our marker, our finger here in Romans 10. We'll come back in just a moment. Let's go over to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30. I want to take a moment just to look at this passage that Paul is citing. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 11. These are the words of Moses. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now, I want you to notice that Moses' point is the command is not too far away. It's not too hard. Verse 11, it's not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. Verse 14, it's very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now, that's Moses talking about that command. But Paul is now taking all of these ideas and saying that better describes what God has done in Christ. The salvation by grace he is now offering. So... He then explains the text, you know, where Moses says in verse 12 there, it's not in heaven that you have to go get it. He says, no, God's already brought down from heaven. And it's not, in Moses' words, verse 13, beyond the sea, in Paul's words, in the abyss, that, that Christ has to be brought up from the dead. He says, instead, it's at a place where you can simply do what you know you must do. Turn the page back to Romans 10. Let's go back there. So you have that idea that the whole point here is of the, the mouth and the heart, of ascending and descending, the whole point is that it's possible for you to do. It's not too hard for us to do. So now, Romans 10 and verse 8, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So where Moses said mouth and heart, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, Paul says, oh, that's a great description of the Christian message. In your mouth, in your mouth, your mouth, and your mouth, and in your What you have to do to respond to God is have his word in your mouth and in your heart. That is, he says specifically there in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Mouth, confession. Heart, belief. It's in your mouth and in your heart. You can do it. And that, the whole point here, please hear me, that is different from a system of keeping the law. That's a system that we can do. You know, I can't keep a law perfectly. I can't guarantee knowing myself I can't guarantee that I will always, always do what's right. But confess and believe, I can do that. And that's the point. You can do it. It's not too far away. It's not too hard for you. You can do it. I think it's important to say this. In light of the fact that so many of us, I would say the overwhelming majority of Christians, battle insecurity about our salvation. 
Is it possible, I mean, is it really possible for me to be saved? Knowing me, knowing what I've done, knowing that going forward, I'm probably going to mess up again. I know me. And so when we, when we feel that way and we think that way, we begin to say, well, I don't know. Can I be saved? Can a person like me be saved? And the message here is that's why salvation is by grace. Because God wants you to know you can do this and to be encouraged instead of discouraged by the weight of the yoke of the law. Now, let me, let me say clearly, I don't believe that Paul is saying here that all you have to do to be saved is confess and believe. This text has been used in that way, but that's not what he's saying in context. Paul will also say in many other places that it's important that we repent and that we're baptized and that we live faithfully under the system of grace that we now live under. Think about Romans 6 and how he argues for that there. But the point is, next to a works system, a grace system is supremely doable. That's the point. You can do it. It's right there. God has already done for you what you could not do. And now all he calls on from you is a response of faith and obedience. And we can do that. The third thing is that salvation by grace is better because it's for everybody. So verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So Here's the transition Paul is making. You know, in the Old Testament, it focused on belief. Even in a text like this one quoted in verse 11, belief has been a part of God's will for a long time. But when he says belief, he says, everyone who believes will not be put to shame. And now Paul begins to focus on the everyone. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. No longer any distinction in offering righteousness to Jew or Gentile. God's saying, no, you're not a part of my people. No, you're not circumcised. No, you're not one of the Israelites. You can't keep the law. Instead, he is the same God to both. And that must have been awfully hard for a Jew like Paul to say, given the background he had in the law of Moses. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I've heard that passage quoted a lot, cited a lot. The emphasis that is usually put on it is calls on the name of the Lord. You know, all you have to do is call. I believe Paul's emphasis here is on everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God's not going to turn people away because of their background or because of their skin color. That's not God. God instead is now opening the doors to everyone. So this is part of why God changed the rules. Because God wanted a system beyond the rules of law-keeping and the, the system that depended on being part of the nation of Israel. Now, now God can reach people beyond the scope of that one nation. God wanted to create a new kind of people. A kind of people that are not just of a certain ethnic background. But a kind of people that are of a certain spirit. A kind of people who will believe and respond in obedient faith when God calls them. He wants his people not just to be of one race, but his people to be of one mind. And so God changed the rules to make that happen. For us, it's important for us to remember that all of us still tend, in spite of the fact that God has opened the doors of the kingdom to all, we still tend toward racial and cultural isolation. We just do. 
That is a universal thing. And so if we are going to be on the same page with God and changing the rules, not only do we need to offer the gospel to everyone, but we need to be comfortable sharing life with everyone, even if that means that they look different and talk different and think different or are from Michigan, let's say. (laughs) It's for everyone, and that means we're going to have to live together in peace and share those things that really do unite us and really are important. God changed the rules to make that happen. And the last thing I would say about this is salvation by grace is better because it's what God always wanted. God wanted to open up the people of God to believers of all kinds. And in fact, part of Paul's argument here is that God repeatedly told his people that he was going to change the rules. Look back in chapter 9 really quickly here. Chapter 9 and verse 22. Chapter 9, 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So he he just asked it as a question. What if, what if God the whole time was putting up patiently with the disobedience of the Jews because ultimately he had a plan to call people from all nations, Verse 24 there, Jews and Gentiles whom he has called into one body to become one nation, one people. That's what God always wanted. And the way God's going to achieve that is by changing the rules that don't exclude everyone and by changing the rules to a system that calls out the right kind of people, a system that will winnow out everyone who is unbelieving. Judaism didn't do that. A system that will demand that people have salvation in their mouth and in their heart. Which is something Judaism didn't accomplish. Because Judaism had people who were simply ethnic Jews who were circumcised the eighth day. But maybe their heart was far from God. That won't happen in the new people. That's what God always wanted. To create a people who have the law of God written on their hearts. And how God achieved that was by changing the rules. You keep reading here, verse 25, chapter 9. As he, indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. Her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying these are Old Testament passages. They say God wants the Gentiles. And they say there will only be a remnant of Israel. That God is telegraphing. This is what I'm going to do in the future. Now it was, it was veiled and they didn't always understand it. But Paul is saying this is what God has always wanted. He's been planning it from before the foundation of the world. And now he has achieved it by sending his son and creating this plan. So you see what's happening. Paul is saying, don't think that because the Jews are rejecting the gospel that God has somehow failed or hasn't kept his promises or that there's something wrong with God or something wrong with the message. Instead, see it this way. This is what God always wanted. In fact, God has made it so that faith becomes the separation point between the new people of God and the people who are not. God made it so that the new people of faith are now 
distinguished on the basis of their faith instead of their race. God has now made it so that this system is now about his glory and not ours. In fact, God has done everything he hoped to achieve by changing the rules. That's the point. And frankly, I'm a little bit with Paul here when Paul is just in awe of what God has done. Because God has now managed to take those three ideas, the idea of people taking glory for themselves, the idea of people separating according to race, and the idea of people trying to serve him without faith. And he has eliminated all three of the problems in one fell swoop. And he did it in a way that nobody understood and could have seen it coming. But now that we look back, we see the genius of God. So Paul steps back at the end of chapter 11, and he says, wow, God is awesome. And what God has done is unsearchable and amazing. So God changed the rules to bring in a system that you and I live under that does all of these things. My admonition to you and me is that we don't think that we can make a salvation process that's about us or a salvation process that's nearly impossible to do and think that we're still following the system God sent his son to create. That we not think that we have a system that's just about people who look like us and talk like us or maybe even are just Americans and think that that's the system that God sent his son to create. And we ought not think that God changed the rules because he got into a bind and he couldn't figure out what to do. And so he said, well, I guess we'll just go with this whole new thing. It is instead a fulfillment of God's plan. So I asked in the beginning, why would we study this? I want us to see how awesome our salvation is. I want us to keep from pursuing salvation the wrong way. And I want to encourage us that it is possible to be saved. Thank you for your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes.